of downloadable streaming singles. Our hope with this podcast is to look a little deeper at what influences musicians and see the impact an album, as opposed to a single, can have on an artist's work. Welcome to The Sound Effect. We are your hosts, Dave Meehan. And I'm Tom O'Connor. here and i don't think it i i think we both thought it wouldn't take very long to happen and it did in episode six six. and we uh, have finally come to someone who has picked david bowie uh (laughs) as their artist i know we throw around the word iconic but he is absolutely iconic and i think you know since his passing has really still become a guy who musicians of all variations have really kind of gathered around in the last couple of years, uh, particularly and certainly over his whole career, but really I think his, his, his passing has galvanized that. So I'm not surprised that, that he, he has come up so early in our, uh, in our podcast and he probably will show up again. I would say probably in the next, you know, maybe 15 or 20 podcasts. We do. Sure. Yeah. Here's hoping we keep doing that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. We do that many, right? Yeah. Um, but you just mentioned, I, th- I think we were both a bit shocked that this, well, a bit shocked that first off, it's a live album. Uh, and it, uh, and the album we're talking about here is David Live, which... It's first live, um, his first live album. Yeah, his first live record, right? So an interesting official, choice. Official live album, right? Like Right. Interesting choice from from our from our guest part today. Yeah, and you know, uh, you noted that it's it's kind of the bridge between he's coming out of uh, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane period, and he's moving into the Thin White Duke. Uh, you know, <laughs> I like how you pointed out uh, the cover of the David Live album. It's Bowie at his most Tilda Swinton esque. He before, does. He looks like Tilda Swinton. Before that was even time. before that was even a thing, he nailed it once again. Bowie. Once again, Bowie does it before anyone. Yeah, so. I, I don't know. I uh, when I was reading uh, about the album, one of the lines I came across is I apparently David Bowie is was not a huge fan of the cover of the album, and uh, one of the things that he said was. Uh, that the album, he joked that the given the cover, it should have been called "David Bowie is Alive and Well and Living Only in Theory." 
<laughs> yes. So like, I guess talking about maybe the paleness. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that was probably him looking back ten, maybe twenty years later at that period because it's well documented he was getting into like the drugs had kind of started to take over. This right. came out in 1974. He's still like three years away from Berlin, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is kind of his reimagining of himself, of his artistry. And right now he's he's uh, in that, well, what am I going to do next phase? And uh, trying to figure it out. And it it is an interesting period. Yeah, so he's moving from, he's on the, this was on the, uh, I believe it was the Aladdin Sane tour. No, sorry, Diamond Dogs tour. Yeah, kind of Which is kind of the end of that whole, yeah, chameleon, uh, androgynous period. And he's moving into, like, you're hearing it in the music. You're hearing the more jazzy. There's a little, the arrangements are a little different. His, uh, his band's a little different now. Um, you know, listening to it, it's, uh, it's very slick production, of course. And, you know, but, but you got to take yourself back to two, two things I was thinking. Back in 1974, how the hell else, other than buying a ticket and trying to get into a show, which, depending on where you were, may have been impossible. Well, if you were in Britain, it was impossible because yeah. this was the he only toured America on this. Uh, Ex- uh, yeah, on I saw this, that, right? which I thought uh, was yeah. really weird, but weird, but makes sense too. I get it. That's your biggest market. Well, he had spent. Well, and he'd also spent the last couple of years really trying to break right when um, uh, from from the. Uh, David Bowie album to the man who sold the world. Uh, I mean, he couldn't break into America. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the premise of that, that not very good biopic (laughs) that came out last year, Stardust. Right. Um, But yet even with hunky Dory didn't have that. Right. So you have a guy who's starting to, he he wanted so badly to, to be big in America. So maybe that's why this tour you know, kind of came here. I, th- I think I read it started actually in Toronto. Yeah, uh, I saw that too. It did start in Canada. And to me, it makes, I didn't see what, which town. Side note, towns like London seem to be getting a lot of tours back in the day, <laughs> which was like amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's this transition period and he's trying to move. You're seeing more of the jazzier, the, the funkier arrangements, the slicker production. And I was reading that too, that a lot of, there were a lot of overdubs on this done later to, to fix up. I think a lot of mic dro- mics dropped or, or lines dropped. So I think you were missing the horn section, which in a couple songs is, is pretty important. That's like, that's kind of the drive of the song. Um, yeah. Well, so there's, could- so there's, so there's that, there's the fact that, yeah, you can't see a band live you, like we can these days. You just jump on YouTube. There's kids today that have mm-hmm. no idea what it was like to, buy a ticket for a show a year out and you're like oh man this show is going to be amazing and you have no idea maybe if you have like there's the odd radio station that would carry a concert or something like that so this was a big deal a live album coming out is a big deal a, a double live album too and oh agreed yeah and so this is you you know you're three or four years out you're you're loving ziggy startups you're loving diamond dogs and this is your first introduction to david live and well, yeah, so that's kind of a big deal, and uh, it's a transition period. And you mentioned that uh, there it was remastered and, uh, by the producer, and yeah. that's almost an interesting one to me. When when an album or his record is remastered, not by a record company or by someone else, but by the actual producer who was behind that yeah. record, because yeah. that to me is always a sign that they weren't a fan of the original mix. And I mean, we go back to our first episode where we interviewed Ian Blurton from Change of Heart. Um, his album, Smile, uh, Philip Michael, oh, I'm going to butcher his last name. But he uh, hated, he did. He wasn't happy with his production on the record and he'd always wanted to remix the record. And I get the feeling Tony Visconti as like, a, you know, a master craft of producer probably was like, really my first, my first big production record with David Bowie is David live. <laughs> and I, and I get the feeling he probably had in his head for years. I've got to go back and remix this. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've, I've read a couple of people who said, yeah. And, and there's some, 
there's some there was also a whole pile apparently a about a bit of drama around the band uh there have been fights just before this album about them being paid union scale right, and right. some weird stuff like that um and and i don't know i think for me and and i, and I like bowie and i like this era of bowie but it, it's strange for me to make a live album. I, I mean, you just talked there about, about the live show and how these tours would be going on for months and months and months, of course, and sometimes over years. The band is changing, right? So with David Bowie, you have a guy who is literally in America listening to soul music on the radio, and that's going to become the sound that influences him on um, Young Americans and on Station to Station. And yet... It's not so much of an influence on Aladdin Sane or Diamond Dogs. So you have this really weird transition period here where this live album's being made when a band's in mid transition. Like, yeah, you can almost t- see him, like, y- you'd almost want to see that first show. And about halfway through, that's when he's like, hey, let's turn up the sax or add another sax or, yeah, turn down the guitar in this part. And and then his and his vocals change right like you're listening to this oh, yeah. like Diamond Dogs for me, uh, I love Diamond Dogs the original and this one just you know that guitar riff is just a little lower in the mix and uh, there, it's a little slower. I always hate it when a song gets slowed down live. You know I want to yeah. I want to feel if it, it's going to do anything I want some more energy. I want it a little faster. And yeah so. There's a lot going on here. So there's some great tracks, and I and I I always appreciate someone who can try to mix it up a little bit live. Like maybe it's not going to be, uh, you know. Th- on one hand, I'm like, no, I want to. If I go see the police, I want to see Stuart Copeland play that same fill that he plays on the album. But he's never going to do it. He's going to do something else. And you know, but I appreciate Bowie. Like, yeah, throwing a little more crooning vocals in than his straight ahead rock vocals. Uh, yeah, and then just working like you can imagine how this tour just evolved over a year. Yeah, and I and I think that's the interesting point. Like it's it, it's a it's a snapshot of a guy in transition, right? Um, my problem with the with the live record is, uh, I don't think I particularly like the the mu- <laughs> the musicianship on the record. Okay, I okay. Um, I mean, Mike Garson to me has always been a guy who at I mean, he's a he's a jazz piano player, and you when you when and at times on Bowie albums, I find there's a little bit of piano overplay, but I'm okay with that. It. It's David Bowie. I mean, overplay yourself to death. But um, I am not a fan of David Sanborn's sax sound. <laughs> that, that New York City early '80s sax sound. <laughs> Oh man, it drives me bananas. And um, you know, I but it's, like it's again like you, like you say, he's been hanging out in America for a, well, a couple years but, now, right? He's, but he's the sax guy on this record, David yeah. Sanborn, and it yeah. just chops through the mix. I just find like, <laughs> holy smokes, is that sax louder than everything else, or is it just me zoning in on the fact that it's David Sanborn, <laughs> and yeah. I just. I can't get by that. And that to me was really, really frustrating. And I think the other frustrating thing to me, and it took me a couple of listens through to realize what else is hanging up on me about this. And then I kind of realized it is Mix not on this record, right? I mean, Mick's Mick gone, Ronson. but Mick yeah, Mick Ronson is gone for Diamond Dogs, so he's not on the Diamond Dogs tour. And and I'll give it to you, Earl Slick is a fine guitar player, but Earl Slick is not Mick Ronson. And and if I think about something like when I hear the guitar on this record, uh, oh, I just find it's really oddly mixed into the into the mix uh i mean particularly i found it on suffragette city like where is that guitar like where is yeah. that big yeah. bold guitar on on that uh record and, and oh, even if you think about like a song like cracked actor which has like rolling stones feel to it on the album mm-hmm. and yet i thought here ah it really just kind of disappears and it's almost like they said okay so we don't have mick ronson we don't have that guitar sound anymore, so let's allow 
Mike Garson's piano and David Sanborn's sax to take over. And I'm just like, really? That's yeah, and that's you're yeah. allowed to take over. <laughs> but like, like Garson's piano playing is is like he's classical, like he's jazzy, he's cla- like. And I think at that point, that's what David's trying to bring out more, right? So he's and he's got this this fantastic piano player, who I think he only hung around for another album or so after that. And didn't show up again till uh, one of my favorite Bowie albums, Outside. And it was like a kind of a Bowie comeback, um, you know, mix in working with Trent Reznor a little more and getting that kind of 90s sound, but with his own style. And uh, yeah, no, no, I totally hear you on on bands. And But again, though, there weren't a lot of live albums around. So I wonder if your opinion would have been the same in 1974. Like the album did well. Like, it's not like it was number one for weeks or anything like that, but it, it cracked the, it cracked the top 10 in a lot of markets. And, and it was, it was still like, not to say that sales are uh, a be all end all, but you know, you have the reviews there, like Mick Jagger saying, if this had been my album with those reviews, I would never have played again. Yeah. And which is like, wow, dude, that's harsh. Cause like, I hate a lot of your stuff. And the reviews for the album, like, yeah, it sold fairly well, but the reviews for the album were dreadful. Yeah, but uh, I, but a, a lot of like, again, reviews are like, oh, we want David this way, and sure. now he's and that, now he's presenting this way, and you're just yeah. not ready for it. No one else was doing that at the time either, right? There was glam rock was out, but no one was mixing it with that '70s rock, you know. And you know, he's a, he was a fan of the Velvet Underground and and Dylan and all that stuff. And I'm just trying to pull out. And then of course the visual aspect, which is totally missing from the album, obviously that uh, is such a big part of a Bowie show. Right. Right. So, and that's the thing too, that you mentioned with the being able to jump onto YouTube now is you get that, that visual element to it, right? Like when you and I were talking about, Oh, we've got a live album here. And you said, Oh, can we delve into YouTube? It is an interesting element in the fact that a live album you're there without actually being able to see the visuals of it right like when you think of like uh you know james brown live at the apollo which i i always see listed as like the number one best live album of all time uh you know what that's an album where you're you're there pulled back in time and you can almost feel like you can see the sweat on his face as he's playing but you yet you visually can't right but yet with youtube you're you're brought into that right you win The reviews I read were talking a little bit about how the production was slick, but I did see other stuff that sort of compared it to uh, the musicians, the musicians kind of being 
back on their heels a bit, which I thought was an interesting way to listen to the album. Like, I think there are certain players who who rise on this record, and again, they're they're just the musicians who I aren't who are not the reason I listen to Bowie records. So yeah, for, yeah. for me, like, listening to those players are, as the stars is rather, eh, you know, it's not, it's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. Tony, Tony Newman on drum, like the drums stick out for me. Uh, uh, you know, like he's, he holds it. Tony Newman is the drummer and he holds it together really, really well and has his own little flashes of brilliance in there and, and some of the fills he does. But uh, it's a David show, right? Like it's he's put this band together to highlight him, mm-hmm. and but him at the, but him at this moment that this at this very interesting, you know, uh, I would say probably just a couple of months where where he's got one foot in to the Aladdin Saint Diamond Dogs world and one foot into the Young Americans world, right? Right. Yeah. I think it's um you know when I listen to it and, and you brought up a good point there that. For a guy who's had such uh, an expansive piece of work, when we heard we were doing this record, I was like, yeah, there's an artist I never think about a live album for because I just <laughs> don't, you know, I think of uh, of the bands that have put out live albums and live albums and live albums, and even bands I'm not a particular fan of who have put out really great live albums. I mean, if I think of something like Kiss Alive is a right. terrific live album. Um, you know, Double Live Gonzo is a great live album by an artist i don't like uh right. but i think but i think with this one i have an artist i like and i'm just yeah the live album just kind of falters a little bit for me it just kind of falls a little flat and i did go and listen to some other live records and i was kind of like yeah it just still doesn't have that thing you know what it reminded me of dave uh when i first became a fan of the who i was like 13 years old and all I knew was I had Meaty Bitty, Big and Bouncy, <laughs> and I had Who's Next. And that was it. And I bought them both for like $5.99 on cassette. And then I went to the record store, and I went to the, the Who section, and like a blind monkey, I just grabbed something. And I probably flipped by the Who's Live at Leeds, and instead <laughs> I grabbed Who's Last. And if you're not a Who fan, like the Who's Last is... Uh- say i'm not a the, who fan i i like no them. but but the no i'm saying if someone out there is not a who oh, fan, right okay they wouldn't necessarily know but who's last doesn't have keith moon on drums right so it's, it's <laughs> kenny jones bad, it's kenny jones and it's such a bad live album to start with and now i look back on it and go wow what was i thinking i could have had live at leeds for an extra couple of years but instead i went with who's last and you let and i i actually put it on this week to listen to it just kind of went oh my gosh what was i thinking and it's the same thing here i listen to this i'm like this doesn't represent the band this doesn't represent bowie to me the bowie i i know and again i think it comes back to me that it's missing that raw rock and rollness that that mick jones or sorry that mick ronson brought to to david bowie right he was the ying to bowie's yang and i think that's that oomph is kind of missing there. And I, you know, I know I'm using a scientific term like oomph, yes. but I, I no, think I that's you. missing there, you know? And I, uh, and I just hear it on the rest of the record. I think you're right. I think the drum, uh, the drum and bass is probably for me where, where I see the most, but the yeah. rest of the record kind of sounds like, yeah, it's just kind of missing a bit of that oomph. And I also think it's a bit missing in Bowie's performance too. It just, but again, I think it's because of the era he's in. He's and in that think, transition. Yeah, I think that transition. It's just a weird time to make a live record, right? Like I think of great live records, and it'd be interesting to go back and look at them and say, well, when were they made? Were they made when that band was at a peak moment? Right. Or were they made between eras? <laughs> Billy rapped all night. 
kick it in the head when he was 25. Ooh, that speech I don't want to stay alive when you're 25. Loses stealing clothes from undercars. Fitness got sits from picking up the stars from his face. Funky little boys. Old Persian man is crazy. Sin with too loud and Church of Trees is an Ottawa-based synth dream pop band led by Bernard Fraser. Their debut album in 2017, Primitive Creatures, charted in Japan, the UK, and across Canada. In 2018, they released The Dark and the Light, featuring the number one single, Like Gary Newman. In 2020, they released their powerful, edgy third album, New Bold Dawn. 2021 sees them releasing a new EP, Pause, which features uh, guest vocals by Rough Trade's Carol Pope. The legendary Carol Pope, of course. Church of Trees music drips with luxurious keyboards that create sounds akin to Bowie, Depeche Mode, and OMD. When he's not making music or painting, he also hosts his own podcast, The Essence of Cool, which I highly suggest you all check out. Bernard, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing, man? Good, how are you? I'm good. Let's just jump right in. I know you're busy, so uh, first question. So let's talk about the bigger question of influence. Uh, what musicians have influenced the Church of Trees sound over the years? Well, um, I mean, the primary influence throughout my life has been Bowie. Ergo, the reason I chose David Live, and there's a specific reason I chose David Live as well. Um, but Bowie, for sure, because he was so instrumental in bringing... I mean, for a, a myriad of reasons, but including the fact that he was instrumental in bringing sort of the, the idea of synth pop to the masses. You know, he was listening to Ken and Noy and Kraftwerk and, uh, you know, thankfully he started to emulate some of that on uh, the Berlin trilogy, primarily on low. So he was huge, huge, huge. But I mean... All of the bands of the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the post-punk, uh, synthwave, new romantic era, Depeche Mode, The Cure, uh, Soft Cell, uh, I mean, you name it. They are all sort of key influences on what the sonic landscape that I create uh, for Church of Trees to varying degrees. Um, but, you know, number one is David Bowie for sure. Yeah, so uh, what I was going to ask is, when we were starting to talk this, we we kind of knew Bowie was going to be a 
be someone who would come up in the in the show probably in the first 10 15 episodes if we got that far uh so um i mean he's obviously an iconic figure but usually when we talk about bowie we talk about the the, the berlin albums we talk about you know diamond dogs we talk about uh, all of these other records um how does someone connect and you just you just sort of said there there's more to this what is it about the david live album that was so inspirational to you as an artist so here's the thing uh at the time and i i bought this when it was issued in 1974 so uh, i'm that old <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and at the time, I was a product of my age. I was listening to, you know, Aerosmith, and I had the Frampton Comes Alive album, and, mm -hmm. you know, there was uh, Genesis, and, uh, I mean, you name it. Um, and I guess I was kind of feeling like I needed something different because I was already a songwriter at that point, and I, I needed different influences. And I worked at the Bay. I was a dishwasher at the Bay, and at every break I would go down and browse their little, they had like this minuscule record collection, and uh, I would go down and, and browse the, the albums, and at some point, suddenly, racks and racks of David Live started appearing. And I knew David sort of, you know, through Space Oddity, and I might have heard changes, but I don't remember. Um, and I was just so captivated by the look of this guy. He looked so friggin' alien. He was so <laughs> gaunt, so thin, but so unusual, you know? And I thought, and, and this kind of, I, I continued to sort of choose albums uh, using this method just by the look of the, the album cover, you know, is what turned me on. So I, I bought the album and I was immediately ensconced in this thing. It just, it blew me away. And it was, what it did is it unveiled Bowie's back catalog to me in a really cool way. Um, you know, I was listening to everything from, you know, uh, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Lat Sane. It was all sort of neatly uh, uh, encapsulated in this one wonderful live album. Plus, I'm a sucker for live albums. You know, anytime I can sort of live vicariously through a really responsive crowd, I'm in, right? Uh, so that was really the reason. That's a, that's interesting, right? Because there's that... Um... I, I think given in the downloading world particularly, but even to a certain extent in the CD and cassette world, we lost that 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 image, right? The importance oh, of that yeah. album cover. Yeah. Uh, and even the fact that Bowie kind of joked about this cover himself, right? That cover spoke to you. What does what does a cover do to you when you when you are encapsulated by it? I'm not sure that I can find appropriate language to describe that it's just kind of a it's immediate it's an immediate response to you know whatever the message is that the the photographer is trying to convey or the artist is trying to convey um for, for this but in this particular instance it was just as i said before it was just this alien quality it would it represented something so different from what i was used to you know like the long hair rock bands like aerosmith i mean you see front cover of aerosmith and it's a bunch of dudes you know hanging out in their jeans and uh, their long greasy hair and uh, and mind you i loved that too but um but this was just so different and it just it really compelled me to buy it and that would have been, you know, 1974, this came out. This would have been shocking. You know, look at this guy with this this haircut and these this weird face and all all what he'd done before that, you know, uh, the androgyny of it all. Right. right? But, but in, a, in a sense, though, so unrepresentative of everything he had done before. You know, exactly. the, look, the look that he portrayed on this album was nothing like he had done up to that point. Um, and, it was a, and it was brilliant for him because he was musically, he was at a crossroads too. You know, he was in between Diamond Dogs and Young Americans. He already had a foot in the world of soul and was already listening to a lot of 
black music, as well as listening to cabaret, uh, as well as listening to jazz. And he had all of these influences. And finally, well, and the all of those influences converge on this album and create this because a lot of the songs are done with much different treatments than you would have heard on the original album because he had these great jazz players like Mike Garson and Michael Kamen. Uh, he had Pablo Rosario, this great Latin percussionist, uh, Earl Slick, who was his new Mick Ronson on guitar, and you know, David Sanborn on saxophone. So all of these different uh, um, musical influences converging and really changing that sonic landscape. Um, so I, I really loved what I'd heard. Of course, as you alluded to earlier, he hated the front cover of the album. He also hated the album because <laughs> he thought it was horribly uh, engineered, horribly recorded. Uh, Tony Visconti says the same thing. You know, poor Tony was kind of given the 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 master tapes. He wasn't at the gig, the, the two nights at the, the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. He wasn't at the gig. It was uh, the fellow who engineered the Diamond Dog session who he had record the thing. And I guess the miking was terrible. The sound was awful. And they shipped it off to Tony. He said, what is this mess? Um, but I thought he did a great job. I still, you know, he, he brought it back um, and re remastered it, re-engineered it back in 2000, I think it was for the 2005 release. And it's certainly a much cleaner, uh, denser, uh, more responsive kind of uh, sound. But I didn't care about that. What I cared about was th all of this new musical information that I was getting. You know, this cool guy who was doing things with music I'd never heard before. And I just adored that. Uh, do you think it helped the, that like you said you you knew space odyssey you know from before and all that do you think it helped that this was your introduction to bowie if you had been a bowie fan for diamond dogs or hunky dory or a man who sold the world do you think this would have been too much for you like too too different too too much change you know that's he he, he may have lost some fans at that time too. yeah right? i don't know if i can ac accurately speak to that because i did experience it in the opposite way but i do know some some friends who were fans of his uh, my friend Brian McDermott from Glasgow who went to the last was at the Glasgow uh, um, point in the final Ziggy tour um, and he wasn't particularly pleased with the David live album because the treatments were so different you know and I can understand how one might feel that way but I loved it because it was so representative of David David was I mean the one thing that we could always count on was David was going to change album to album to album. He was going to change. He was going to do something different. He was going to do something unexpected. And David live was, you know, fell right into that category because he changed it all up. So yeah, I can, maybe he did lose a few fans, but you know, um, the hardcore, you know, hardcore fans stuck with him. I mean, how many fans did he lose when he released Low? Because nobody understood the album, right? It was like, <laughs> what the right. hell is this? <laughs> right, right. But he goes on to, you know, conquer the world, right? And uh, now we look back and he is, you know, he is the essence of cool. Uh, he is the icon among all musical icons, right? He's the guy that people look to as representative of, you know, the, the pinnacle of success and uh, the pinnacle of cool and also i think the pinnacle of, of artistic kind of integrity right as someone sure. who was always shifting and changing and moving um uh, unlike say a, a rolling stones that sort of said we're just going to kick the same three chords right. out and yeah, keep right. doing it right right and he always he always seemed to be one step ahead of everyone else that's the, there there may have been a scene there but he was he was the first one to take it absorb it and go for it on his own he had his finger on the pulse of all music. He was listening to everything and he was, and he was just this wonderful sponge. He was asking people to feed him with information. Uh, he had, um, I think he had the first uh, Velvet Underground album before Anyone else, he got an acetate, I think, from New York. Somebody sent it to him uh, before anybody had heard of, you know, of the Velvet Underground or Lou Reed. Uh, he had that first album. 
and he was you know talking about it to people um big uh, influence on him too right a huge influence but before it was even released he was talking about it you know and you know it's funny i I think back to uh, one of the interviews that tony visconti gave um he said the one thing he could count on whenever he was getting ready to do a new david bowie album is that we were going to screw with it you know he would always wait for the moment that david came david would come in and say how can we screw this up to make it sound different you know and he loved playing with that you know and that was well and i think he that, just I challenged think himself to, absolutely absolutely well and right. i think that that comes across particularly on the german albums where you have him sort of stuck and then saying oh how do i get out of the stuck uh, out of being stuck here let's reach out to brian eno and get him involved and then we can really kind of blow the doors off of this a little bit right well well that's right that's right yeah i mean that so, and go ahead no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just thinking that that uh, I have this wonderful book, by the way. Anyone who is a Bowie file or or is a fan of David Bowie might want to consider this. Uh, it's called David, uh, the complete David Bowie, and it really is the David Bowie Bible. But it's by Nicholas Pegg, eight hundred pages, and he goes through every aspect of David's career from beginning to the very end, and he looks at it from every different perspective from the songs from the albums from the live uh, for the videos the films he was in it's just a brilliant album a brilliant book i should say and so many great uh, quotes both from david as well as everyone who was around him in the making of every single album so does this album still kind of a touchstone when you go into do some recording do you still look on this as like yeah this is the, that production style, maybe a, a layer of, of audio or something. Is this something you still look back to on this day? Does it still influence you to this day? Yeah, um, it certainly influences me to the day, to this day. I mean, I've had, I don't know, probably at least four vinyl copies of this because I worn out the vinyl copies because I listened to it so much over the years. Um, it certainly uh, is influential from, not particularly from a sonic perspective, but just in terms of ideas and structure and how he played with structure, how he changed things up. And, um, you know, it reminds me a lot of uh, Brian Eno's card deck oblique strategies where, you know, it forces you to look at things differently. And every time I listen to, to David live, I hear something different and hear something that he's added or changed or switched up, maybe subtle, it may be overt, but just these, it's these little things that really uh, prick up your ears, you know, and the, just the conceptually uh, it really inspires me. There's a couple of, um, in the in our time doing this show it seems to come up in every episode in one little way here here or there uh but that idea that music is not always about the sonic or about the words or or necessarily even being the best album by an artist but that emotional connection that you have to a record uh one of our past guests talked about um the importance of the record wasn't so much the record but remembering buying that record or being in that moment you mentioned where you were working uh the the copies of the album being out how much do you think uh, out of our listening is connected to that emotional piece where it's not even maybe your favorite song or album or whatever but there's that emotional piece to a record that makes you go yeah that that album will always hold a, a, a particular place in my heart more than anything. Music for me is completely emotional. It, everything, uh, emotion is what drives me in every aspect of music. Um, and that is my connection to every album I've ever heard, every song I've ever written or performed live. Um, it's that It's that emotional connection that is the most significant piece in my estimation. It may not be for others, you know, um, aficionados and uh, sort of the, the folks that are in for pure performance are more about technique and uh, and that sort of thing. I'm not. I don't care if somebody's sloppy. Uh, it doesn't really bother me as long as they're connecting with me emotionally. You know, if they don't quite hit the note or if, you know, the guitar is a little bit out of tune, if it's hitting me emotionally, I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter.
are so key to uh, the execution, you know, and I think about David Live, to, to bring it back to David Live, is there was such chaos around the, this tour. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the band members were pissed off because they weren't being paid the appropriate rate for the recording or they didn't want to be hidden behind the screen because the whole thing was basically, a, it was like a Broadway musical where they hid the musicians behind a screen, except for sort of key people every once in a while. It was all about the theatrics on stage, you know. Right. So there's that chaos and there's uh, uh, the, the, the tension between band members. Uh, you know, Bowie's, uh, uh, this is the beginning of, of Bowie's uh, drug, uh, drug addled coke phase, you know, and he is, uh, he's up and down. You talk to him one minute and he's the, you know, a kind, loving person. You talk to him another minute and he's ready to rip your head off, you know, and, but it's all of these things that contribute to the execution. Um, and I think that that's really key. You know, I think about when we go into the studio and I'm always looking for things to sort of feed the atmosphere, to, sh to just change it up a bit, right? Uh, and when, it, when things are too staid or too structured, you don't get uh, necessarily the coolest performances or the coolest ideas don't, aren't generated when you're, uh, when you're working in, in sort of a sterile environment. But when it's kind of a bit chaotic and things are happening, um, that's when, you know, magic can happen, right? Well, that's, well that, that goes back to the you know, 60s, 70s, uh, early 80s, where a band would move into a studio for a month or two, right? Especially, especially bands like Bowie, uh, the bands from the 70s. Yeah, they would take over a studio for and just write and, and record for like two or three months. Uh, and it became a badge of honor that, you know, oh, we took six months to record this album. But it's also, you know, they would seek out these locations, Montserrat, uh, the old the studio in Morin Heights in Quebec was a big one too, just because you go there and you're immersed in this environment, which is away from the city. You know, it's a country environment. It's beautiful. And it's just, you just, you're there to create and there's no time limits. The label's paying for everything. So whatever, you just got to get out and make money. Right. So yeah, I, I can see your point there for sure. 
was this the tour, uh, the David Live, where I think it was during time where he would go out on a on a boom over the audience on a chair? Was this that tour? That's this tour, yeah. Um, I think it was actually Space Oddity. Um, he may oh, have performed it? time, uh, yeah. but famously it was Space Oddity, okay. uh, where he would go out in the crane and uh, you know over the audience, and and he's got a telephone, but it's actually yes. a mic, mic looking like a telephone, yeah. and he's he's singing Space Oddity. But apparently, there was a uh, one stop of the tour where the crane broke. <laughs> this was uh, this was why I was asking because I saw where he was. I saw the interview where he. You know, back in the mid '90s, he was talking about it, and just it just seems so hilarious. So Spinal Tap, right now, right? That's right. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I, I wish I had have seen that tour because it was it was really a feast for the eyes. I mean, he created, as I said before, he created it as more of a a Broadway spectacle than uh, than a band playing, right? Um, so I missed that one. It it came to Toronto, uh, the O'Keefe Center in Toronto in '74. And it was actually the second stop of the North American tour. Mm -hmm. They opened in Montreal and then stopped in Toronto and just got rave reviews because it was such a spectacle. So when I first started going to see Bowie live, which started with the following tour, Station to Station, I was always looking for that sort of David theatrical experience and sadly didn't get it up until he uh, launched the Glass Spider tour. That was, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I... I, I adored so, so many people pan that tour, but it was fine. I finally got to see David at his most theatric. So. Yeah. And I think that was my introduction to David live. That was the first uh, time I saw him, saw him at the exhibition in Ottawa. And uh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. I can't believe someone's doing this with this stuff. Like, why is he flying in on a chair with a telephone and, and stuff like that? Right. And, uh, so yeah, that was probably my big intro to the theatrical David Bowie, but he'd been doing this for years. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, and f- as I say, I'm so glad that he finally got back to his sort of th- the theatrical side of himself because, uh, it was a real payoff for me, but, uh, because that first, you know, the, the first tour that I saw was the station to station tour, which was the exact opposite. It was, mm-hmm. there was, it was a very sort of uh, a blank stage, really. He's, he's in black and white and, and basically a tux without the, the, the coat. The band is all there and they're just jamming on stage. You know, there was no theatricality about it whatsoever. Uh, so I was enthralled with the performance, but so disappointed that I didn't get that, you know. Even as I'm listening to this live album, I was saying to Dave, uh, the, the glaring thing, a mission for me was no Mick Ronson, which uh, just well is aired, so aired, alive on those it, early records. But Ergo, yet, the reason he brought in uh, Earl Slick, who I thought right. was a, um, a sort of a, I mean, he wasn't Mick Ronson. There will never be another Mick Ronson. There's no question mm-hmm. about that. But I thought he was a reasonable facsimile in terms of the sound, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, you know, every time I see Earl uh, in live performances, I'm just, you know, it gives me shivers because the guy is friggin' am- amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, he's not Mick Ronson, but, you know, anyways. I went to film. Sorry? Hard shoes to fill, for sure. Oh, I mean, hu- hard and huge shoes yeah. to fill. I mean, Mick was Mick was brilliant. Um, I I follow his uh, his wife on uh, Twitter and Facebook, and uh, you know she still misses him so much. He did, he died in the early nineties, what ninety three, mm-hmm. I think it was, and she still misses him. Um, he was such a a brilliant guy because he was more than just a brilliant musician. He was a super nice down to earth guy, you know, and people like that in the music industry. are. I was just going to say that it is a rarity. And you, you, when someone like that passes away and you hear those nice stories, you realize, Oh, one of the good ones gone too soon. Right. Yeah. And even Bowie, Bowie would say that too. Right. Bowie commented all the time that he was the, uh, to, he needed to counterbalance that that Aladdin sane in him, right? To, and he needed Mick Ronson for that, right? To, oh, for to sure. counter that side of him. For sure. The, the, the quote is when he found him, uh, which was back in the early 70s, uh, before, even be- way before Ziggy, uh, he said, I finally found my Jeff back, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. 
So. And then, and, and it's amazing a connection to you um, played with the Paolas, right? So um, yeah, uh, and produced Le- produced Lisa Del Bello uh, mm, as well. Right. Spent a lot of time in Canada, in fact. So, yeah, yeah. Final question uh, of this: What's your favorite song on that record? You did mention to me when we were uh, emailing back and forth that it's side one and two are your favorite sides. Uh, you know. Uh, a favorite, there isn't a favorite because they are all meaningful. Well, most of them are meaningful to me in different ways. Um, I would, Rebel Rebel is really meaningful to me because I was just, I have my own little podcast uh, called The Essence of Cool. And I was uh, interviewing Christopher Ward, who uh, uh, famously wrote uh, Black Velvet for Alana Miles. And uh, I Much actually... That's right. That's right. And I actually lived in his apartment for a couple of months because I was dating Alana's sister. Um, and Alana would let me open the second set of her shows uh, every now and again. And I would open it with Rebel Rebel. So that's really meaningful to me because of that connection. But a sweet thing, I think, sweet thing and Moonage Daydream, I think, are only because they are... Sweet Thing is like this epic song that goes everywhere and it changes tempo and it changes dynamic and uh, uh, it it really shows off David's voice from his lowest low to his highest high, you know. Um, and Moonage Daydream is, is such a showcase for the more sort of avant-garde David with a, a masterful solo by Earl Slick in the middle of it. So I think those two really stand out, but the, I love them all, man. I love them all. You know, just to go back to what you were saying earlier, Tom, about, you know, even a real uh, Bowie file would, would admit that, there, you know, he didn't like every song. There are whole albums in the 80s I never bought or listened to. So. <laughs> Full disclosure. To love in a doorway To strangle some screams from the dawn And isn't it me Putting pain in a stranger Like a portrait in flash Trails on a leash Will you see Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know what? But I think that's Bowie, right? I mean, I mean, right. as someone who changes that much, I just I can't see how you could because I mean the man was always changing. Right. So to have that many different sides shown, there's of course going to be blips in the radar, right? Where you're like, right. yeah, yeah, we're kind of off there. <laughs> if it wasn't off, you know, you know, you again, I I don't want to compare, but we talked earlier. You made a great comment about him being maybe the most iconic rock star now. I think for years we thought of Mick Jagger as that. But Mick Jagger's the Rolling Stones have been kicking out the same thing since, you know, those five, you know, inescapably amazing albums in the early 70s. And then after that, it's been like, let's just keep doing this same thing over and over and over again, right? So I can understand someone saying, I love the Stones because, yeah, you love every single thing because they've been doing, or ACDC, for example, right? Right, right. Yeah, I don't think you can do that with Bowie because, like you guys were just talking about, the the mid-90s Bowie is an industrialized Bowie. The last Bowie album is a sort of avant-garde, jazzy thing going on, experimental. Uh, Then you have that Bowie of the 80s that's like a dance pop star, right? (laughs) So you have all of these different variations. So to to say that you were in on all of the Bowie just seems... a little disingenuous too. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, really, all you have to do is just pull up "Dancing in the Street" with him and Mick Jagger and say, "Really, <laughs> you're, in, you're into every Bowie." <laughs> you know what? I that was Live Aid, and I love <laughs> that. So, <laughs> but I, I, I just look, reflect on uh, on 1982 and Let's Dance because it was where you know, Bowie at his most popular. And if you were going to say Bowie sold out, that's when Bowie sold out. But I still love. That. Oh, it's a great song. Yeah, and I'm yeah, great, great album. And I'm still upset with uh, Carol Pope, uh, as you pointed out at the beginning. There, I got a chance to work with Carol uh, this year on her new album, Pause, and uh, she opened for David on the Let's Dance tour for the entire tour. Uh, the entire Canadian leg of the tour, and I'm so freaking jealous. And she got to hang out with them and chat with them and gossip with him. And can you imagine being able to hang out with David Bowie at the peak, at the height of his uh, his career? I well, and I've always appreciated bands. Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the Who, and the Who have always been legendary for bringing not so great openers with them um whereas i've always i've always appreciated the the rolling stones and the bowies for for bringing great openers and with bowie what i always liked is it was always a really cool opener you know whether it is the uh you know the nine snails of the world or polyphonic spree when they played in ottawa with them but also, you mentioned Rough Trade, but he also brought Hoxley Workman out on tour oh, yeah. uh, for the Canadian dates, right? So always this thing about being um, understanding that, that that music wasn't all about him. Music was about all these other people making music too. And then, like you guys were both saying earlier, how do I take that music and implement it into my right. own music, right? right? Allow it to inspire me. But he, you're right. He absolutely was such a champion of new artists. He really looked for the coolest of the cool and tried to uh, champion them and introduce them to the rest of the world. TV on the radio, placebo. Mm. Uh, um, oh, the, our band from Montreal. Arcade Fire. Arca- yeah. Arcade Fire. You know, he was doing that all the time. And God bless him, you know. Yeah. No, it's like I say, he, he saw, he knew what was good. Yeah. Yeah. He knew a good thing. He knew a good thing. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks to Wadi for letting us use his song in my heart as our theme song. Thanks to Bernard Fraser from Church of Trees for joining us this week. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening to the sound effect. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it on the social medias. And remember, there's always a great record out there just waiting to be discovered. So keep listening.